Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living today. With Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien from the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California. To ask questions or join in the discussion, email us at the Yoga Hour at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, here's your host, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, our time to open our hearts and our minds to the infinite. I'm Yogaria O'Brien, and today I'll be sharing some insights and practices from the ancient system of Kriya Yoga, philosophy and practice for spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. Yoga is a Sanskrit word that is so familiar to many today. Uh, as a sense of union or unity, bringing together our attention and awareness to abide consciously in our essence of being, our spiritual nature. So today we have uh, the delight, the joy, the um, blessing of meeting Edwin Bryant and talking with him about the Yoga Sutra that really will help us understand um, how yoga is a practice to help us meditate more skillfully and live a spiritually conscious life. We're going to be looking at where the sutras come from, how they're being used today, and um, how this classic text of yoga philosophy can be a great support for us. Welcome, Edwin. I'm so uh, delighted that you're here on the Yoga Hour today. Edwin Bryant received his Ph.D. in Indic Languages and Cultures from Columbia University. He taught Hinduism at Harvard University for three years and is presently professor of Hinduism at Rutgers University, where he teaches courses on Hindu philosophy and religion. He's received numerous awards, published six books, and authored a number of articles on Vedic history, yoga, and the Krishna tradition. 
And he's a personal practitioner of yoga for over 35 years. And so this brings a real uh, depth and consciousness uh, to his work. He strives to combine academic scholarship and rigor with his sensitivity towards traditional knowledge systems. In addition to his academic course load, Edwin currently teaches workshops on the Yoga Sutra, Bhagavad Gita, and Hindu philosophy at yoga studios and teacher training courses throughout the country. So we're going to be drawing from from his translation of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra today. Uh, it's a new edition that um, provides insight from the major pre-modern commentaries on the text and grounds the teachings in their traditional context and makes them accessible all at the same time to the modern uh, student of yoga today. Uh, Edwin, again, welcome to the Yoga Hour. Thank you. And before we dive into our conversation about Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, um, let's just take a moment for centering meditation. As we begin this conversation this morning about yoga, we take a yoga moment, a moment of consciously breathing, becoming aware, becoming centered. We open our hearts and our minds to divine omnipresence, one reality called by many names that is the support and substance of all that is. And so we remember that right where we are, right now, this divine reality is present. It's present as you, as me, as everyone, everything around us, within us, between us. So let's just simply move our attention from the periphery of our awareness into absent we can use the tool of our breath to do that as you breathe in, just feel that you're diving within, drawing your attention within. And as you breathe out, relax, let go. Just feel the air enter your nostrils. Cool air striking the back of your throat and the warm air blowing out again. And any time we pause like this, we can call it a yoga moment, a moment of union, a moment of returning our attention and awareness to our essential spiritual nature beyond change, beyond thought. And when we do that, and even for a moment, we can have a glimpse of peace, stillness, well-being, and we take a moment to abide in that peace and, and to consciously let it overflow as a blessing for all beings everywhere. As Paramahansa Yogananda said, we can take this portable peace with us everywhere we
I'm so delighted, Edwin, that you are joining us on Yoga Hour today. I want to let you know I am um, enjoying your commentary on Angeli's Yoga Sutra, and I am, I'm holding it in my hand right now. It's a beautiful book, and it's um, such a support for all of us on the path of yoga because it is so comprehensive. And I, I want to tell the listeners that, that this book, uh, the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, this uh, new edition translation and commentary uh, with insights from the traditional uh, commentators, is uh, is nearly 600 pages, um, it's 590 or so. But I don't let that scare you, um, because what he has done is, is really given us this... Um, deep look at the origins of yoga, the history of yoga, um, looking at then a sutra by a sutra, um, going through the text, and yet it is very user-friendly, as a, to use a modern term, is very user-friendly, helping us you know, draw from those roots, but in a very, very accessible way. When Paramahansa Yogananda uh, came uh, to America in 1920 from India to bring uh, Kriya Yoga to the West, his guru, Swami Sri Yukteswar, instructed him to teach the Kriya Yoga of Patanjali. And uh, for myself, you know, after uh, years, uh, decades now of teaching yoga in a variety of settings, I have found that to be, of course, very sage advice. Um, because I find that um, students really resonate um, in, the, in the West, especially resonate with the sutras, you know, with its universal... Um, applicability, uh, its uh, practical nature, and its comprehensive view of the nature of the mind, how to meditate, and, you know, how, how to live. I've often said, if you know, people say, I wish I came into this world with an instruction manual. And in, you know, in my sense, this is it. And so, Edwin, what drew you to study the sutras? And, you know, how do we end up with the benefit of this wonderful book you've written? Well, um, I, 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 when I was teaching my students um, Indian philosophy and so forth, um, I felt that there, obviously, that you know, there was great interest in the Yoga Sutras, uh, and it's sort of been transplanted, you know, when when the, with the Krishnamachar tradition and Yogananda you just mentioned, and Iyengar and several of these prominent gurus that came over to the West. Um, Yogananda came, of course, in the in the twenties, but a lot of them came over in the sixties. And so they brought this this text. So there was this kind of sense that somehow or other the Yoga Sutras is a canonical text for the yoga community. But I felt that while there were many translations, um, there, there wasn't there weren't that many that were actually grounded in the traditional commentaries. There were some translations by scholars of those commentaries, literal translations, but they're so dense and um, and technical that, to all intents and purposes, they, you know, someone without a without considerable background in Indian philosophy would have a hard time reading them. So I felt there was a need to to write a commentary drawing from the tradition, in other words, representing the views of these six or seven primary commentators from, say, Vyasa in the, in the third century right up until 
Hariharananda in the 19th century, these sort of six or seven great, actually, you know, great commentators that contribute to something significant. Um, so I felt there was a need to draw from them and, you know, sort of put their insights together and and create a new commentary uh, drawing from all of those that was that was that was user friendly that one didn't need to be a sort of Indian philosophy specialist to be able to access and so that was the motive that um, inspired me to take to take up this this task um, and also it's it's a sort of generic yoga text it's at, it lies at the base of all other yoga systems including Kriya Yoga which is mm-hmm. more of a sort of uh, yeah which is more of yeah. a Shakta tr- tradition yeah yeah, no, absolutely. Of course, we find it, you know, defined uh, in the generic, very universal sense in that text, um, you know, what Kriya Yoga is, in, uh, you know, as defined by its practices and its and its emphasis. And, um, and, and so, you know, for you personally now, you know, of course, you, you have to be completely inside of the sutras to do this work and to teach it in this way. So how, you know, how have the Yoga Sutras influenced your, your world view, you know, or life experience? It's, um, yeah. So can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, I've already, uh, you know, I'd already long inhabited this worldview from, you know, I went to India in the, in the 70s, um, I was one of these characters that hitchhiked over to, to India in the days when you could still do that. So, <laughs> you know, I'd been sort of many years, you know, embedded in this worldview. Um, so what the sutras did for me was not so much change, change my worldview because it, it's, it, it's, an, it's an expression of, of that worldview. But it just made me so much more aware of, of, of the workings of the mind, the nature of the mind, you know the, the 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 massive role that samskaras play in our perception of reality, and also in our attempts to practice. So it it made me much more more acutely aware of 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 those kinds of issues, and also it 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 really um, helped me in my own practice, um, which is more of a bhakti practice. My own sort of my own personal practice is more it has more bhakti flavorings than you will find in Patanjali. You'll see a little pat- bhakti in Patanjali. It's what I call Patanjali light. I mean, it's what I call uh, b- bhakti light, L-I-T-E. But um, my own tradition is, is, is really more like a, a bhakti extra strength, triple X. But, non- <laughs> but, no- but nonetheless, Patanjali gives us the sort of real, um, you know, the whole idea of, of focusing the mind, um, even in a, in a bhakti, in a bhakti um, tradition, um, but focusing it so exclusively on the mantra or whatever it is that one's focusing on. Patanjali's Yoga Sutra really gave me a, a deepened sense of how central and important that type of practice is in all mm-hmm. other forms of yoga. Mm, absolutely, and that's so beautifully put. And I, and I think that um, for those of us who are towards bhakti, you know, towards our uh, spiritual uh, path and expression through devotion, um, which, of course, Paramahansa Yogananda was. You know, when you read, you know, his um, writings, you see, you know, this heart of this bhakta, this, you know, his devotion to God, you know, to Divine Mother is so strong. Um, and, and for those of us who are inclined in that direction, it seems that the Yoga Sutra is a great balance. And, um, you know, we look at Paramahansa Yogananda's uh, Guru Sri Yukteswar as a Gyan avatar, you know, one who is really right. focused, uh, yeah. you know, the, on, on the wisdom aspect of yoga. So, you know, it seems that uh, it Yoga Sutra can provide a really good foundation, but also, you know, help to uh, bring balance um, 
you know, overall uh, to uh, to our lives as practitioners of yoga. And, you know, today, of course, um, and one of the reasons I was really uh, excited to talk to you is, you know, there is this trend now where yoga philosophy and, uh, you know, you can't really separate practice from philosophy. So all of that is being taught in so many different settings today, university, meditation retreats, yoga teacher training, hatha yoga classes, you know, a spa, you could, you could run into Patanjali at a spa today in America. So why do you, you know, why do you think this is happening and what is your experience of it? Well, you know, mostly, I mean, obviously a lot of yoga that's come over to the West has really been what scholars nowadays prefer to call modern postural yoga because it's dealing just on the poses. If you look in the sutras, actually, the poses only uh, comprise, there's only three verses on asana out of 198. There's, I think, 12, 12 words out of 1,200 words. So it's pretty much 1% of the text is actually dedicated to poses. Um, so, so what's been exported or transplanted to the West in the name of yoga is really only a minuscule fraction of what yoga actually is supposed to be. And even that minuscule fraction is sort of connected to this larger project, which is to experience pure consciousness. Um, but what I think has happened is, first of all, some of the gurus, the big gurus that came over, you know, wrote their commentaries. So this caused, you know, like, for example, Iyengar has his commentary on the Yoga Sutra. And I believe Satchitananda Swami has. So this makes the, made the text sort of canonical in those circles. That's one thing. That is, and by the way, I often like to joke, there's probably more people reading the Yoga Sutras in, in the West now than in India. This is not a te- it's not a text that's studied in India. It's an, an elite uh, scholastic text. It's just like in Christianity. Very few people will be reading, you know, the early church fathers, such as you know Origen and so forth. Um, most most Christians maybe just read a little New Testament or this and that. So likewise in India, most people are reading, you know, the Ramayana or the stories of you know Devi Purana and so forth. Um, so th- it's quite a phenomenon. As a matter of fact, when the British first went to, to India and they were looking, they were running around collecting texts and they were interested in Vedanta and the Vedas and so forth, they could not find a living yoga teacher. They could not find anybody in, in, in India that, could, that was actually representing a living lineage. So in many ways, the text has, is enjoying something of a renaissance because of the interest that that is, it's enjoying in the West as a result of several things. So the first is the gurus that came over, um, and there's a reason for that, um, um, which we can talk about if, if you want. Why did they focus on the Yoga Sutras rather than, let's say, the you know, other more, more prominent texts in India? The second thing is that you know, Yoga Alliance now you know, has, in order to get a certification through Yoga Alliance, you know, 200 hours or whatever it is, but 20 of those have to be philosophy. So that's actually forcing people, whether they want it or not, if they want to get a, a, a you know, license, they have to have some kind of, you know, engagement with the philosophy. Um, so those are a couple of, of things. Um, and, and, and the third thing possibly is this, that, you know, people are getting so much benefit from the asana. I mean, it's transforming their whole way of physical way of being and their, you know, sense of being in their body and so forth. And of course, people realize that this is only a small portion. And I think people are, many practitioners are starting to ask, well, if I got so much out of this small little, little insignificant portion of what yoga really is, well, what else might there be there? What else might there be that might be relevant to, 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 to the mind or to consciousness and so forth? 
So um, perhaps these are some of the reasons why people are becoming more interested in the sutras as a text. And I, and I see it because I've been doing workshops now for 20 years uh, outside of academe um, and in yoga studios. And I see an increasing interest and also an, an increasing sophistication, um, not in all areas, not in all quarters, but amongst some you know, practitioners and increasing sophistication in their understanding of the sutras. I see that too, you know, in the period of time that I've been teaching, um, um, an expanded interest and also familiarity. You know, uh, when I started teaching decades ago, people had never even heard of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. Um, but, um, people are familiar with it. And I think, uh, for the reasons that you listed, you know, when we come back from the break, Edwin, let's, let's talk about a little bit about the origins of the sutras and how, you know, knowing that can um, be supportive of our uh, insight and our practices. You're listening to the Yoga Hour with special guest today, Edwin Bryant, professor of Hinduism at Rutgers University and of the book we're focusing on today, uh, a translation and commentary of the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. His website is Edwin Bryant, B-R-Y-N-T dot org. We'll be right back with you. Unity Online Radio brings you inspiring programs on a variety of spiritual topics. Giving to the network is now easier than ever. Simply text Unity Radio to 72727 from your smartphone. You can make a one-time or recurring donation. Your gifts help us offer enriching spiritual programs that reach listeners around the world. Text Unity Radio to 72727. Thank you for your support. If you've ever wondered how a specific Bible verse might be interpreted metaphysically, then Interpret This is for you. In Interpret This, Unity Minister Rev. Ed Townley answers your questions about the Bible and how to apply its verses to your life with passion, depth, and spiritual insight. To submit a question or to enjoy any of his numerous metaphysical interpretations, visit unity.org and click on the Interpret This box. What if you were intentional about your life, committed to having more energy and being more vibrant? Join Reverend Temple Hayes, spiritual leader of First Unity at Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, as she guides you on a journey to an intentional and energetic life. Empower your life and fully express the wondrous energy, love, and joy you hold in your wildest imagining. Joyfully and actively know that more important than what happens after you die is the deeper and enriching concern for what happens while you're living. How can you experience an incredible life right now? Learn how each week on The Intentional Spirit. Seeing and Being, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Central Time, right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Listening to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. We now return to the Yoga Hour. 
Welcome back to the Yoga Hour. I'm Yogacharya O'Brien, and uh, we're talking today with Edwin Bryant, who's professor of Hinduism at Rutgers University and author of a new uh, edition, Translation and Commentary, uh, with insights from the traditional commentators of Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. And, um, Edwin, in your book, you know, you, you have, uh, just a fantastic, uh, first section on the history of yoga. And, um, you know, in this book itself, you, you've taken particular care to, uh, connect, uh, modern students to the roots of yoga and to the work of the great, um, uh, original uh, commentators on the sutra. So can you just briefly tell us a little bit about, <laughs> I know that's a bad question, like how briefly a little bit about the history of yoga and uh, and some of these uh, original commentators that really when we see commentaries on Yoga Sutra today, um, most draw from these uh, traditional commentaries. We don't always see it in the text, but usually they're 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 looking at those. We hope sure. anyway. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the <clears throat> I guess the, the the history of of yoga is in the in terms of literary sources because we we can never we, no one can say how long it's been practiced. All we can say is when it first surfaces in literary sources. And it surfaces as probably the oldest text of the Upanishads. These are late Vedic texts. And these are kind of the, the, you know, all later Indian schools of philosophy and spirituality, uh, uh, you, know, find, you know, anchor themselves in the Upanishads. And the Upanishads are, you know, a large body of texts, and they talk about a number of things. But one of the primary things they talk about is, is to seek Brahman, is to seek our true selves, is, you know, that we are Atman, we're not these temporal bodies, we're not these, even these minds. These are just overlays that behind all of this is consciousness. And, and, and supporting consciousness, there is this larger um, entity, Brahman, the absolute truth. So the Upanishads are, you know, they're not philosophical texts, they're more kind of mystical, poetic texts, but they repeatedly urge us, to, you know, that the goal of life is to seek that Atman, seek the Atman, that's who we really are. It's only there, it's only there that we, find, we will find the fulfillment that we seek. And all else is, I was just translating a verse this morning in the Upanishads, all else is suffering, which actually then becomes the first noble truth of Buddhism. But it's that right there in the, in the Upanishads. Any, any other quest is, do, is bound to end in frustration, or at least unfulfillment. So we're repeatedly urged in this way, but we don't really get much of a technique for how to go about realizing that Atman. I mean, in other words, the, the Upanishads are descriptive. They're kind of informational. They're telling us, you know, you are Atman. You are not, you are not this ephemeral, temporary, uh, you, know, you know, body and mind. But in one or two passages, we get just a few lines where we get our first sort of glimpse at yoga. We can call it proto-yoga, early yoga. And, you know, and, and, we, and, we, and we have a description of the yogi who sits by running, running water, um, and who, you know, is trying to, basically trying to control his mind. Just a few passages, but not very developed. So because of the nature of the Upanishads, as they're not very systematic, they're not, uh, um, you know, they seem to say different things in different places. Um, uh, after the Upanishadic period, you get like a sutra period, where you get 
um, because on one hand there's a threat from Buddhism, um, which is denying the existence of an Atman. On the other hand, you get the sense of the age as the Kali Yuga is dawning and people's memories are getting weak and the knowledge systems are going to be lost. So the intellectual, the theologians of the time, um, it developed the sutra traditions, and there is a number of different sutras, the Vedanta sutras, the Nyaya sutras, the Vaishishika sutra. And the idea of the sutra traditions are to preserve and codify um, for all time, I suppose, in the minds of the authors, to sort of fossilize in a good way, um, the ancient knowledges, that, that there was a sense that they were getting lost or under threat. So amongst these sutra traditions, and there's an, a number of them, one is the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali. So an individual called Patanjali, we know very little about who he, who he was, almost nothing. Um, in fact, we know nothing other than a verse that surfaces in the 11th century, which is the, you know, the verse that's sometimes chanted at yoga studios. Um, saying that he brought yoga and he brought Ayurveda and he brought grammar. But that, that verse doesn't service for, you know, another half a millennia. Um, but anyway, you get um, Patanjali, this individual called Patanjali takes it upon himself to sort of systematize these earlier references you, that you find in the Upanishads. You also find in other early texts like the Mahabharata, the section of the Mahabharata called the Moksha Dharma, which is dedicated to yoga practice. And a huge Mahabharata epic has one section. Uh, which is huge itself, but um, which also deals with yoga. So Patanjali then uh, took it upon himself to systematize um, this thing called yoga. And therefore he wrote uh, 198 sutras, very, very curt. The sutras are minimalistic. They're probably, I think the average is six words per sutra. And he wrote 198 of them. The reason they're short is they have to be memorized and so forth. Now, of course, because they're so curt, and because the information is so technical, you can't really understand them on their own. Just, you can't just read a sutra because it, 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 it's, it's, just, it's too dense. And it needs to be explained. The idea are these are just sort of, um, these are ju- it, 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 it's a sort of system for um, teachers to unpack. It's a way of preserving the information, but it needs to be unpacked by a teacher. So therefore, they were meant to be taught and in the history of yoga, then, some of these teachers, you know, a number of them wrote commentaries, the most important of which is the one by Vyas. So where Patanjali will have a sutra that is like six words long, Vyas will come along and write 12 or 15 or 20 lines. So it's Vyas that tells us what the sutra means. So when we talk about Patanjali's yoga philosophy, actually what we should really be saying is, you know, Patanjali's yoga philosophy as interpreted by Vyas, because Vyas is, is really part of the canon. In fact, some, in fact some, there are some views that Vyas, in fact, was Patanjali himself writing a commentary on his own sutras. That's an idea that's been around uh, for a while and has resurfaced uh, recently in academe. So therefore, we are dependent on the commentaries to actually understand what these very, very curt, minimalistic, um, obscure sutras mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, the, you know, the study of the sutras is always accompanied by the study of at least Vyasa's commentary and maybe one or two others. And as I mentioned earlier, there's probably six or seven significant commentaries in, in what we call the Yoga Shastra or the Yoga Tradition. And, and you have included many of those in your book, which is really yes. helpful. And I think, you know, we can also see, uh, you know, listening to you uh, as well, why um, the modern day uh, teachers of yoga, the gurus, uh, many of them, you know, who came to the West would write their own commentary, drawing from Vyasa's, you say, um, but get, write their own commentary because, you know, the students hear the teaching, the voice of 
their own gurus, you know, their own uh, tradition. So there's um, a resonance there. There's, um, you know, there's the whole culture, the whole metaphor that comes across. Um, and so, you know, that's one uh, one answer to, you know, why there are so many uh, different commentaries, because um, it allows the students then to, to hear uh, as their teacher, you know, taught it to them. You know, what what do you see as the uh, essential themes that are, are covered in Patanjali's uh, Sutra? Of course, we have the four padas and, um, you know, it's divided that way. But, um, you know, let, let's just point to the heart of it. Let's start there. You know, what is what do you see as uh, we could call the heart of the sutras or the, you know, maybe the purpose, put it that way? Well, Patanjali just starts right off in the, you know, throws us in the deep end. You know, first, first sutra announces what he's doing, Atha Yoga Anushasanam. And then right off in verse number two, he tells us what yoga is. Yoga Chitta Vritti Nirodaha. That yoga is the stilling of all states of mind. And then immediately then, the third verse, you know, what happens when the mind is stilled? Tada Drashtuhu Surupe Vastanam. Then the seer can abide in its own nature. Then consciousness can abide in its own nature. And verse number four then, vritti sarupyam itaratra. If it's not abiding in its own nature, what is it doing? It's absorbed in the vrittis, it's absorbed in the mind. So that's the, those you can, you can say are the seed verses. I mean, that's my term, it's not Patanjali's. But I would call them the seed verses, those four that encapsulate what yoga is. So then, for the rest of the chapter then, you know, for, for the, then for the next few verses, Patanjali discusses you know, yoga, chitta, vritti, nirodaha, it discusses what the vrittis are, discusses what nirodaha is, and basically the rest of chapter one is called samadhi pada because it, it basically discusses what are, these, what are the states of samadhi, what, what are some of the experiences that the practitioner may undergo when the mind is in the state of nirodha, of intense stillness. And he basically, you know, he delineates seven different stages. So that's the first chapter. It you know, establishes what yoga is, and, and then a discussion of, of, of some of the states which culminate in complete uncoupling of consciousness from the mind. The consciousness at the final near Bija Samadhi, uh, consciousness becomes absorbed in its own nature. At this point, it's no longer aware of the mind or of any external entity. That's the goal. You know, then this, let's say, yeah. you know, the very teaching, of course, is one that, you know, blows open <laughs> the minds it, of it, Western. It's really radical. It's very radical. It's a very radical proposal um, to, that, you know, to actually just, I mean, consciousness is absorbed in its own nature. It has no awareness of anything else. That's a really, yeah. that's a, for yeah. some people, that might be a scary proposition. Yes, and, and it, you know, of course, it says, uh, so much about how uh, yoga philosophy views the mind, you know, which is often new, you know, for uh, Western practitioners, um, you know, uh, who, uh, you know, have identified the self with the mind. And so, um, well, a, you know, part of the reason part of the reason for that is that in our Western systems, although we have a notion of the soul, so we do have a notion that consciousness is different from the body in, our, in let's say, Plato and Christianity, which, of course, borrows a lot from Platonic thought. But in Plato, when we talk about the, the soul, in, Plato gives it the term psyche, it's not just consciousness, but it's the mind as well. So in Platonic thought, which then becomes, you know, sort of absorbed into Christian thought, when we think of the soul, we think of the thinking faculty, the soul. What is the soul? It's, the, it's will, it's judgment, it's thought, it's all of these things. Um, and, and therefore, we, we think we are the mind because in 
in Platonic Christian thought, we've been taught that we are the mind. We've been taught we are the soul, and what is the soul? It is the mind, it is the thinking faculty. And it's really important to, to be clear about this distinction between yoga philosophy and this sort of Platonic model. And, and this is not true of all Hindu schools, by the way, but it is true of Vedanta and yoga and Sankhya. In these traditions, the, the soul is, is consciousness, which shares that with Plato and sort of Christian, normative Christian models, but it isn't the mind. So the mind is like the body, external to, the, to consciousness. This is, this is one reason why it's so difficult for us to grasp this. A, because of our historical understanding of what the soul is, and B, obviously because of our everyday experience. And our everyday experience is, is always an experience that's mediated by thought. We've never had an experience that's not mediated by thought. So then along comes the Yoga Sutras, Patanjali proposes, saying, well, I'm going to teach you about yoga. And what is yoga? It's the stilling of the thought and, abi- uh, and the abiding of consciousness in a state beyond thought. So that's a, a, a proposal that we're just not familiar with either in terms of our intellectual, you know, Western intellectual traditions or in terms of our everyday uh, experiences. Right. It's, it's totally radical, but it also gives us the key to our own freedom. You know, it's, you know, once we begin to um, comprehend it intellectually and then to, you know, have some direct experience of the self, you know, uh, we, we can see how, uh, identifying with the mind, you know, and, and the thought process is, is like a dog, you know, chasing its tail around and around. And so, yeah, so it does, you know, it gives yes, us yes. the, gives us the key to liberation and also in a, in a very practical sense, you know, like you were saying earlier, um, Patanjali's text, um, helps us understand about vrittis, about the thought waves in the mind, about the power of samskaras, the the imprints in the mental field, and, you know, how we can purify the mind and get beyond all that. You know, otherwise, um, we just continue to chase our tail around. Absolutely. And suffer. And that's the cause of our suffering, because we're caught up in this in this world of anxieties and fears and hopes and d- desires and aspirations. It's always, always churning, 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 and therefore there's no... There's no peace. There's no stability in the mind. And as Krishna says in the Gita, Ashantir kutaha sukam. Without peace, where, where's the question of happiness? Mm. So um, it's, the mind is the source of all of our problems. But it can also be the source, you know, Krishna says in the Gita, the mind is, could be your worst enemy or your best friend. And Patanjali says something very similar in the fifth verse, right after the four verses I just quoted. He says these vrittis are either klishta or aklishta. They're either, you, they're either, you know, coming from a place of ignorance or they're coming from a place of knowledge and, um, and well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah, I think, you know, when we, when we introduce these concepts about the mind, you know, to students who are new, and I, I remember, you know, being a new student myself, and the idea that all of our uh, experiences, uh, are, you know, our thoughts and these impressions are recorded in the chitta, you know, in the, in the mind field, you know, at first it is completely daunting, you know, and mm. all we can think about is all the um, bad habits we have, the negative thoughts we think, you know, all right. of that. Oh, oh no, you know, it's all there, you know, how do I get beyond it? But as the verse you just quoted, you know, all of our yoga practice, uh, and especially our meditation also is, is being recorded in the chitta. So, um, we're planting those positive seeds, uh, as well. So, uh, 
we're going to take a break, and and when we get back, um, I'd like to know if you if you were um, going to advise a, a student, uh, or you yourself were you know had to just carry off a few sutras to uh, Walden Pond, uh, which ones would you take with you? So you're listening to the Yoga Hour. I'm Yogacharya O'Brien, and my guest today is Edwin Bryant, uh, professor of Hinduism at Rutgers University, author of the Sutra, and Bhagavad Gita. And his website is edwin, E-D-W-I-N, B-R-Y-A-N-T dot org. And there you can find uh, articles by him, uh, find out about his publications and his teaching schedule, edwinbryant.org. We'll be right back with you. truly understand the laws of the universe and live a life based on these profound and unwavering truths, then your dream life starts today. No more waiting. No more wandering. If you're ready to let go of the striving and move into the allowing, you are ready for everyday attraction on Unity Online Radio. We study the teaching of Abraham given to us by beautiful Esther Hicks so we can release confusion for clarity, exchange struggle for serenity, and have the time of our lives today. Join host Ray Zander every Friday at noon Central Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, on Unity Online Radio for Everyday Attraction, where the law of attraction gets real. Does the idea of being a vegetarian or a vegan intrigue you? Is it something you've pondered? Listen each week as Victoria Moran, author of Main Street Vegan, shows you how to make the shift to a sustainable lifestyle for both you and the planet. Each week you'll learn about the latest on the vegan life. It's not just for celebrities and moguls, but for people just like you who want to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Guests will range from unity ministers to vegan authors, activists, physicians, chefs, and even some of those glittery celebs. There'll be recipes, ideas, tips for going vegan at your own pace, and ways to make a difference for animals and the planet at every meal. Tune in Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Central Time for Main Street Vegan, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. You're listening to The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. If you have a question... Please submit it via email at the yoga hour at unity online radio.org and we will respond. Now, back to the yoga hour. Welcome back to the yoga hour. I'm Yogacharya O'Brien, and today we have the honor and delight of um, speaking with Edwin Bryant, professor of Hinduism at Rutgers University, and we're drawing um, from this wonderful uh, translation and commentary on Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. He has 
offered. And um, Edwin, in, in the last segment, you know, you started out um, talking a bit about the structure of the sutra, and uh, you were mentioning the first uh Pada, Samadhi Pada, you know, where the very definition of yoga is given, the, the purpose of it. And, and then, um, I, I steered you off <laughs> into the nature of the mind. Um, but just briefly tell us about the last three padas and, um, and then we'll go into, um, you know, what sutras you would, uh, take to Walden Pond with you. Okay, well, well, quickly then. Um, the so the first chapter then is is a, is, a, is what 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 is a def- definition of yoga, and then a discussion of the different states of um, concentration of samadhi, and then the second chapter is called kriya, which really it comes from the root kra, which means to do or to act, same root as karma actually, and um, the kriya yoga is okay. What do we have to do to prepare ourselves? We can't just sit and enter into a deep state of samadhi because the mind is too agitated. Um, and therefore, how do we purify the mind? How do we start, you know, controlling the mind on the one hand, you know, tapas. On the other hand, as you were saying yourself, we implant these new, you know, sattvic types of samskaras. So that's what they're transforming the mind is not like a mystical, magical um, process. It's a metaphysical one. Everything that we do leaves an imprint. Um, so we just start controlling those negative imprints that, that we've been allowing to be fed into our mind, and that's tapas. We start controlling, you know, what we eat, what we listen to, what we what we do with ourselves, our social life, all of this. We start controlling what goes into our body through the senses. On the one hand, that's tapas aspect of it. And Kriya Yoga is defined in this way. And the second thing, we do Swadhyaya, so we study and we do mantra, which starts putting in new imprints into the mind from the sacred texts, from our teachers, the mantras. And finally, Ishvara Pradhidana, it is a theistic tradition that we surrender to a higher being, which is Ishvara. And, you know, the beautiful thing about Hinduism is that Ishvara can, takes many forms according to the inclination of the bhakta. So, in, you know, in your tradition, for example, you know, the goddess is, is very much stressed. So you have the beautiful, you know, coming from Bengal, you know, Kali and Durga and the various forms of the goddess. In other traditions, it might be Shiva. Other traditions, it's Narayana, especially sort of South India. And then, of course, there's Krishna, the beautiful, playful Krishna. And, you know, very popular in the heartland of India, of course, Ram. So these are the forms that Ishvara can take in many other forms. And one develops a personal relationship with that Ishvara. And that relationship is cultivated through meditation, through taking the Japa Mantra of that. And Patanjali calls that the Ishta Devata. Um, taking the mantra of that uh, of that form, doing specific pujas that are associated with that particular lineage. So Kriya Yoga, the second chapter then, um, doesn't get so much into all of that. I, I'm sort of adding a certain amount of gloss there. Patanjali just lists these three little things, uh, the tapas, swadhyaya, ishvapranidana. Um, the re- then the chapter goes on. It gives, I think, you know, in all my years of studying Sanskrit texts, and I'm, you know, I, I don't do very much else, um, it has one of the best, most concise um, descriptions of the mechanics of karma and reincarnations, in, in reincarnation in just four or five verses very beautifully put um, and it explains why why should we seek consciousness what's wrong with being absorbed in our mind what's wrong with running around the world seeking pleasure through the senses and through the objects of the world you know it, it, there's nothing preachy about Patanjali he's not preaching there's no moralizing tone there's no imperative tense he doesn't say thou must thou shalt it, nothing like that. It's just informational. He just explains. Look, this is what this is. This is this is why we suffer. This is the cause of our suffering. This is what the alternatives are. 
So basically, Chapter 2 dedicates itself to, um, to what, how, do we, how do we create a lifestyle that's supportive of yoga? Um, and the eight limbs of yoga, you know, the actual eight limbs of yoga are found in Chapter 2, including and out of the eight limbs, the one of them that is the postures that, we, that, that has sort of been extracted and, and, and transplanted as being yoga, where really it's only a tiny little, a small little section of the second chapter. So therefore, the Chapter 2 then is, is, a, is the action, uh, you know, what, how do we act in this world, what, how do we sort of, what kinds of um, activities are conducive to the goal of yoga, which was explained in the first chapter. The third chapter is almost like a little warning because, um, you, you know, if when the mind is in intense concentrated states, um, according to these traditions, uh, supernormal things can start to happen. Uh, especially in the Shakta tradition, I think a lot of attention is paid to the cities. In the Patanjalian tradition, Patanjali actually is, is, is a little cautious about that. He, in fact, he, he comes out and says, these are only of interest to those whose minds are outgoing, not to those mm. who speak the self. So <laughs> nonetheless... <laughs> He gives the warning about he, he does. getting stuck there. He's stuck there, because, and the reason is because there were many, if you read the old texts, especially the Puranas, the Mahabharata, the Ramayana, these texts, which had lots of stories in it, you know, there were a lot of yogis in the forests of ancient India that were doing something that looked very much like yoga. They were sitting, they were ascetics, they were ragged, they were fixing their mind, but they had no interest in the Atman whatsoever. They were doing this in order to attain supernormal power. So, in a sense, they were materialists. They were just seeking material power through an alternative route. And so Patanjali, and, and, and these types of characters, and some of them are malevolent. They're not even, they're, they're, they're malevolent. They're asuras in Sanskrit, which means that they're, you know, they're dangerous characters. So mm-hmm. Patanjali's making a warning that, you know, that, that there are people doing this kind of mind control, but for, the, for very wrong reasons. So the third chapter dedicates itself. He doesn't reject the cities. He, he, he discusses them. He says, yes, they're attainable, and this is what they are, and he lists a few. But then he finishes by saying, but these are of no interest to real yogis. That's the third mm-hmm. chapter. And the fourth chapter then is it, it's basically a few bits and pieces, but, but one of the, the main themes of the fourth chapter is a response to a certain form of Buddhism that was, I would guess, must have been dominant at the time because it's a very particular form of Buddhism, which is Yogacara or Vigyanavad Buddhism who were um, to the school of Buddhists, Buddhism that denied the reality of the external world and only believed that every, you know, there was only a flow of consciousness. Um, so anyway, I won't, we won't get too, de- too technical, but Patanjali's system is, is distinguished from that, and therefore he needed to demarcate what he was teaching from this other view. You know, he's, he's very polite, not polemical, but he does... He does give the reasons why the yoga tradition does hold that consciousness is distinct from the mind and is autonomous and is independent, um, mm-hmm. which, of course, yeah. So those are the four chapters. Um, and Eternal. So, you know, we'll, I am hoping, of course, Edwin, that you'll come back and we'll have an opportunity um, for another conversation because, like I said um, to the listeners this morning, this book is nearly 600 pages. And, uh, do not be daunted. As um, yoga, studying, studying and practicing yoga, of course, is a lifetime pursuit. And, um, it's not going to take you a lifetime to read his book, but I, I think it will be a good companion uh, for you uh, on the yoga journal, uh, on your yoga journey. Um, so, 
Edwin, before we finish, and we're just about to finish up here now, um, I, I perhaps I'm going to have to bring it down to one sutra. So, you know, you're you're leaving for Walden Pond, and uh, you have to pack light. You know, what is the sutra that you take with you? Okay, very quickly. Uh, the, uh, the chapter I would take with me would be chapter two, because that's the practice and, and right there. But if, if, you, if I have to just, if it's just one sutra, it would be Tajapa Tadartha Bhavanam, to do the japa, uh, Patanjali is recommending Om, but if you have a form of Ishvara that that is that has stolen your heart, like Shiva or Vasudeva or Narayana, then it can be Om Namo Shivaya or Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya or Om Namo Narayanaya, whatever your mantra is. Japa, to do Japa, to fix the mind on Japa, and that way you get two, two for the price of one. You get to fix your mind, but you also get the, you also get the grace of Ishvara. Mm, that's beautiful one to, to take along, and I like the two-for-one offer. And, um, <clears throat> you know, I like the way that we have this um, teaching in the sutra that says, you know, if you're, if you're going to uh, remove the obstacles, you know, you can practice pranayama, you can practice japa, um, you know, so there's various ways are offered. And then, you know, there's the sutra that says, or you can surrender. Um, and so I think that's a favorite one uh, for me, which is, you know, just letting go of this sense of uh, independent uh, existence and, uh, you know, abiding, abiding in the one. It's been such a joy to uh, meet you, Edwin, and to talk with you about uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra and its uh, relevance, of course, for seekers today. And again, I want to recommend your book, uh, The Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, the new edition, translation and commentary uh, for students, and also to direct people to your website, edwinbryant.org. And if you're listening in uh, real time this morning, I want to invite you to a meditation uh, retreat at the center that will be place November 19 to 21. This is self-unfoldment, that's capital S, self-unfoldment, living up to our highest potential. And uh, I will be offering that retreat with Swami Bodhananda Saraswati, and uh, you are invited. So go to csecenter.org to find out more about that retreat and more about programs at Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, um, which is a meditation center in the tradition of Kriya Yoga. Remember to subscribe to the Yoga Hour. If you don't already, you can do that at iTunes. Let your friends know about it. Uh, I look forward to um, being with you again next week. Uh, Derek Lynn, uh, author of The Tao of Happiness, is going to be back with us, and he'll have some stories from Chong Su for our spiritual journey, and he'll be talking with uh, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. So thank you again, Edwin, for being with us today. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you and a pleasure meeting you on the air. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks to Jeff Comfort in our sound room and to the folks at Unity Online Radio who make this program possible and to our producer, the Yoga Hour, Vicki Martin, and my guest co-host, uh, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. I look forward to being with you again. Uh, until we meet again, remember to let your inner light shine into the world and share your peace and your joy 
with all that you need. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, with Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien. Join us every Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Central, 8 a.m. Pacific, for practical, purposeful methods for spiritually conscious living every day. The Yoga Hour, Living the Eternal Way, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. This program is brought to you in part by friends and members of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment in San Jose, California, a ministry in the tradition of Kriya Yoga, the ancient science of self and God realization, www.csecenter.org. Request free literature by writing info at csecenter.org. Every moment we live can be holy, and all we need to do to experience that state is to make the decision to do so. Everything we do can be a prayer, and by using our innate creativity with intention, in every aspect of our lives, that can indeed be true. Author Carla Kincannon wrote, Creativity is so much more than art making. It is a tool for navigating through everyday experiences to find the sacred in each God-given moment. Discover Creative Spirit, Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Central Time, and experience the joy of connecting to spirit through creative expression. have heard someone say, I've learned my lesson. I'll never do that again. All too rarely do we hear, that was a wonderful lesson. I'm glad it happened just the way it did, even though I was uncomfortable going through it. I now understand why I experienced the pain. With this new awareness, I can change my behavior so I won't make the same mistake in the future. We bear a good part of the responsibility for creating both the positive and the negative situations we experience in daily life. Wisdom comes from understanding the result of our choices and realizing that we can always choose differently. By fearlessly confronting the role you play in the experiences you may have judged as mistakes in your life, you can make future experiences fruitful and increase your wisdom. This Law of Life is brought to you by Unity. To find a Unity Church near you, visit www.unity.org. The world is full of voices, advertising, television, politics, colleagues, family, and friends. All are too happy to tell us how to live. In all of that noise, it's easy to miss the one voice that matters, your own soul. What would happen if you could hear that voice? Imagine the clarity, confidence, and courage that would be yours and the life you could create. Join Janet Connor, best-selling author of Writing Down Your Soul, The Lotus and the Lily, and Your Soul Wants Five Things. 
as she and her guests explore how to hear the call of the soul and create the soul-directed life. Live Thursday at 1 p.m. Central, only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Go inside to find my God. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash divine 2022 